Hello and welcome to the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avine Banish and I will be your host. This is the weekly podcast that helps women pause in their busy lives, drop into the heart, and remember their next right step. I am so happy that you're here. Hi there, this is Dr. Avian Banish. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. This week I'm excited to share with you my conversation with Dr. Eben Alexander. Dr. Alexander is a neurosurgeon. He spent 25 years in academic neurosurgery and 15 years of that he was working at Harvard, so he's really well trained. He is the author of four books, uh, the most well-known um, and the first being Proof of Heaven. Uh, then he wrote Seeking Heaven, Map of Heaven, and Living in a Mindful Universe. And just a little bit about his story, he sort of launches into it right at the start of the podcast, but in the pre-dawn hours of November 10th, 2008, Dr. Alexander was driven into a coma by a rare and mysterious bacterial meningoencephalitis of unknown cause. He spent a week in a coma on a ventilator, and his prospects for surviving that were 2%. On the seventh day of that coma, to the surprise of everyone, he started to wake up. The memories of his life had been completely deleted inside the coma, yet he awoke with memories of a fantastic odyssey deep into another realm, and that's what he describes as his near-death experience in our conversation. Since that time, Dr. Alexander has um, been on a quest, really, to understand consciousness, to uh, chat with and share with other people who have had near-death experiences. He's written multiple books about it. He has spoken all over the world. And in the end, his message is really inspiring and hopeful. And so uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Eben Alexander. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wholehearted Healer Podcast. My name is Dr. Avian Banish and I am once again your host and I'm really excited this week and honored to have on as our guest, Dr. Eben Alexander III. Um, Dr. Alexander has written multiple books. Uh, one that had a real impact in my life is Proof of Heaven. He has a really amazing story and I believe in terms of you know this podcast and what I'm seeking to connect with people who have a wholehearted view of not only the world, but of healing and of life. I really think that uh, Dr. Alexander is one of those humans. And so Dr. Alexander, welcome. Well, Yvine, uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to be with you today. Wonderful. And I wonder, you know, I'm sure many people listening have read your book or heard your story. Um, but I wonder for those who have not, if you could just start us out by sharing your story, that really dramatic story that happened to you years ago. Right. And I'll, I'll try and keep it compact so then, then you can explore with whatever questions right. you'd like. Uh, important to point out that at that time in 2008, when I went to coma, I was 54 years old. I honed a very conventional scientific worldview. Um, I'd taught neurosurgery more than 15 years at Harvard Medical School, so thought I had some idea about brain-mind consciousness how they all worked. Uh, and then uh, I went through a major life-changing experience. It showed me not only 
uh, kind of the profundity of my ignorance, but also some clues towards a deeper understanding. Uh, and it all came packaged uh, in this illness that, uh, you know, I look back on very gratefully uh, for having had the illness because it was such a gift. The, the uh, various uh, illuminations it gave me about the nature of, of reality. Now, important to point out, my NDE has one very atypical feature, and that is that I was amnesic. I had no memory of Eben Alexander's life. I had no words or language, no knowledge of this earth, humanity. Uh, it really was an empty slate going in. And early on after recovering, when I was trying to explain to my doctors what had happened to me when I was still uh, amnesic for much of my neurosurgical knowledge, um, I, that's when I really kind of hit a wall because I kept uh, understanding just how uh, damaged my neocortex was. And modern neuroscience would say that any of the details of modern conscious awareness depend on the neocortex. It's the most powerful calculator in the brain. And yet meningitis is a perfect model for human death because it selectively uh, destroys the neocortex. And that's why my experience is so important to the scientific community. They take it very seriously because of the medical details. And they were reported in a case report, Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, September 2008, uh, that makes two major points. One is my brain was far too uh, ill and devastated to come up with any dream hallucination confabulation or the most rich, richest, most extraordinary experience I'd ever had, which is what happened. How could that happen when the brain is pretty much dismantled? And the other thing was my survival. For anyone who wants to question this story and say, oh, you know, uh, it doesn't mean that much. When you go through the medical details, it means a lot because there are no cases like this in the mental, medical literature in terms of that severe case of gram-negative bacterial meningitis with survival and then full recovery. That's the part that's so shocking. Anyway, the case report makes that clear as I try to do in proof of heaven. But to get right to your question and to the kind of contents of that spiritual experience I had, uh, it started in what I call the earthworm's eye view, a very primitive course unresponsive realm. Uh, and I was rescued from that by a slowly spinning white, white light that came as a kind of a musical melody and, and served as a portal up into this rich ultra Rio gateway valley. Uh, and the gateway valley is, is where many of our kind of uh, spiritual reunions would happen when people in NDEs describe uh, kind of connecting with their higher soul, you know, beyond the ego mind, and also connecting with souls of departed loved ones. Uh, and uh, I mean, this gateway valley for me had many earth-like features. I was a speck of awareness on a butterfly wing, but I never had a body of any sort. I was just aware and aware of events around me. Uh, there were th millions of other butterflies looping and spiraling in these vast formations. And the, one of the most beautiful things about it was I wasn't alone witnessing all this. There was a beautiful young woman beside me. Uh, and of course, those who've read Proof of Heaven will realize how crucial her role was four months after I awakened from coma because of learning her identity is what actually kind of sealed the deal for me and proved the reality of it. And uh, that, from that point on, four months post-coma, when I recognized who she was, that has driven the 14-year sense of extraordinary uh, delving into this as a scientist, trying to understand how it can all happen, what it means for all of us. Uh, but in that gateway valley, uh, I remember we were witnessing thousands of beings below us, 
uh, dancing, lots of joy and merriment, uh, festivities going on. It's all being fueled because up above were these angelic choirs that were emanating chants and anthems and hymns that would just thunder through my awareness, uh, completely enliven this entire experience with an incredible uh, kind of life force and uh, meaningfulness. And uh, this beautiful uh, spiritual companion on the butterfly wing, her message to me, uh, every time I passed through that level in this journey, because I would cycle through uh, many times, uh, but the message to me was very simple, and I think that it was the ultimate message I was to bring back to this world. For all fellow souls, you are deeply loved and cherished forever. You have nothing to fear. You are richly cared for. Uh, this extraordinary comforting vision of being in a spiritual home. And even though when I describe uh, this scene, it might sound kind of foreign, uh, for me, it just brings back beautiful warmth in my heart because of the feeling I had, the uh, bathing in that ocean of love. That's the thing that near-death experiencers come back with that reassures them there's nothing to fear about death. That extraordinary love has infinite power to heal. And coming in touch with that uh, can greatly enliven one's ability to connect with those zones, uh, with those realms later on, and to bring healing uh, to oneself and to help bring healing to this world. Now, it turns out that that Gateway Valley was, as we say, only a gateway. And there was yet another portal to higher and higher levels. And I remember seeing all of our four-dimensional space-time, this earthly realm, this universe, material world collapsing down. And then all of that spiritual realm, which has a much higher kind of ordering of causality. For example, the fact that people often describe life reviews and have described that with NDEs going back thousands of years. And the life review is a perfect example of how your boundaries of self and your knowledge of being here and now are in many ways a fiction to support the drama to unfold. But from that perspective in the spiritual realms, you're completely outside of space and time to the point where your birth, your death, everything in between can be presented to you, not as a memory, but as a very rich reliving of experience. And the other interesting thing about it, other than what it shows us about the, the kind of fictional nature of earth time perceived in this realm, uh, is that the boundaries of self in many ways are also false because people often describe a life review as uh, um, going through the main events of your life, both good and bad, as if they harbor teaching lessons, but doing it in such a fashion that you appreciate it from the emotional perspective of those around you who were influenced by your actions and even your thoughts. So in other words, it's, it's showing us we're kind of sharing the dream of the one mind. And this little ego mind is not who we are. It's part of the stage setting and kind of who we're to be in this drama. But there's a sense of higher soul that goes through multiple lifetimes that learns and teaches these lessons with other members of the soul group. And that all became very clear to me in that core realm. Now, what I saw collapsing was that deep time, that different ordering of causality, as well as the spiritual realm, collapsing down. And I, I went through a, yet another portal. This one was also musical. It was engendered by those uh, swooping orbs of angelic choirs. And it provided a portal to higher and higher levels until all of the 
the layers of the material and spiritual universe had been collapsed down into this complex oversphere as part of what I was to be taught. Uh, and that was when I was in the core. The core is a resolution of all dualities uh, far beyond any of our kind of earthly discussion of masculine, feminine, good, bad, light, dark. All the du dualities that make up this world uh, are reconciled and kind of brought together in that core realm. Uh, and that's where I witnessed uh, that in incredible feeling of the infinitely loving God force. And I came back calling that God force Alm because that was the sound, the resonance in all of eternity infinity that I witnessed uh, was how I identified that God force. And I came back realizing, you know, don't waste time debating whether that force is called God or Allah, Brahman, Vishnu, Jehovah, Yahweh, Great Spirit. I don't care what you call it. Ultimately, we're all talking about the same infinite force of healing, wholeness, love, compassion, kindness, forgiveness, of oneness, of the one mind that we all share in this beautiful dream. And that is uh, what I, I learned in that core realm, although there are many, many other things uh, that I've spent the last, you know, 13, sorry, 13 to 14 years kind of unpacking and still am very busy unpacking in my uh, talks and discussions with other scientists, with other experiencers. Uh, I mean, to me, uh, this whole journey is still unfolding. But it turns out that I would cycle through those realms. So I would, from that sanctum sanctorum of the divine and that uh, core realm, uh, with oneness, a pure oneness with that God force. And believe me, this is far beyond Eben Alexander's little ego being one with the God force. This is well, well beyond all of that. But this extraordinary sense that the very source of our conscious awareness is that infinitely loving God force. And that only as we come away from that oh, spiritual realm and come down into lesser and lesser and lower levels, denser levels, till we finally get here to material bodies and, and our brains and our sense of awareness in this world, uh, do we realize that uh, some of those little inklings of apparent evil and darkness have crept into the mixture and they serve uh, to kind of enhance our growth. They provide that gradient, that differential, and enable us to have choices in this world. And the more that we choose uh, love and compassion, mercy, forgiveness for all of our fellow beings, the more straight and, and uh, kind of beautiful our course is of spiritual growth and enlightenment. But we can choose to do otherwise. And if we choose to mistreat others and uh, be greedy and selfish, all we're doing is choosing a more arduous pathway towards that oneness with the divine. But it's still our choice. And in fact, I think the whole world exists for sentient beings to go through this extraordinary journey of discovery uh, of kind of their alignment with the purposes of evolution of the universe at large. And uh, when I uh, went through these cycles multiple times during my NDE, what happened, uh, uh, every time I went to the core, I was told, you're not here to stay. We'll teach you many things. You'll be going back. Uh, the, of course, not in words. Those are the words I used weeks later when I was writing it all up. But that was the conceptual flow. Uh, and uh, they were right. I wasn't meant to stay there. And there came a time when I tried to conjure up the musical melody, the memory of those notes, uh, to get up out of the gateway, uh, out of the uh, earthworm I view, back into the Gateway Valley. And it didn't work. Just as I've been told many times going into the core, you're not here to stay. You'll be going back. 
I'd even come to believe going back meant going back to the earthworms I've used. So I thought, no problem. I've learned to, uh, you know, remember these musical notes and these conjure up those portals. But it didn't work this final time. Uh, to say I was sad at that point would be a vast understatement, but I also knew I could trust that I would be taken care of. I'd been, I'd been reassured so many times by that beautiful guardian angel. And this was when I witnessed thousands of beings going off into the mists around me, heads bowed, some holding candles, some with arms up like that uh, in a kind of prayer position. And their murmuring energy was surprising to me because it brought this incredible sense of love, comfort, and uh, invitation to be part of this beautiful process. And that was very surprising coming in these lowly murky realms because so far uh, that beautiful feeling of kind of oneness and spiritual home had only happened in the Gateway Valley and in the core. But now I was feeling it down in this lowest realm. And then I was aware of the six faces that kind of popped up out of the muck. They'd say a few words, then disappear. And I can remember them visually, uh, and the, the experience itself, I remember today as if it all happened this morning. I mean, the memories are that sharp and clear. Uh, but in fact, those faces were important. They were veridical time anchors. They were Five of them were people who were physically present in the ICU room the last 24 hours of my coma. They helped to prove that the vast majority of the coma experience had to happen between days one and four, or one and five. I explain all that in uh, the book, uh, Proof of Heaven, and also go into further explanation in our third book, Living in Mindful Universe, that was co-written with Karen Newell. Uh, but th those faces were right before I came back to this world. Uh, and then what happened was the sixth face, which was uh, my 10-year-old son, Bond. And now I didn't recognize him at the time. I was still completely amnesic for my life. But it was a Sunday morning, day seven of coma. Uh, the doctors estimated I'd gone from 10% chance of survival early in the week down to a 2% chance of survival at the end of the week, but no chance of recovery. And that's why they recommended to my family stopping the antibiotics and just letting me go. Bond overheard that. They had protected him from the worst news during that week. But when we heard that, he knew it was bad news indeed. Ran down the hallway, pulled open my eyelids. I promise you I didn't see him with my eyes, hear him with my ears. I was still on the ventilator I had been on for seven days, deep in coma. And uh, that's when he was pleading with me, Daddy, you're going to be okay. Daddy, you're going to be okay, as if somehow that would make it so. And in fact, that did draw me back to this world. And throughout this entire experience, I had thought, this can continue or it can all cease. It doesn't matter. But now all of a sudden it mattered. In fact, when I saw this other being and recognized I had a responsibility to him, even though I had no idea what his words meant, but I could sense that deep emotional connection. And I knew I had to come back from him. It was the only terrifying moment of the whole journey because so far I've been free. Anything can happen, doesn't matter. Now it did matter. And so that's how I came back to this world was... Uh, emerging from that realm, knowing I had to somehow come back here. I don't know how it all worked, uh, and yet that's what happened. I started waking up in that ICU room. Initially, uh, I, my language was very sparse, but it came back quickly over hours and days, childhood memories over weeks. All my semantic knowledge, cosmology, physics, neuroscience came back over about two months. That itself is an extraordinary mystery. And in fact, we discuss all that in Living in a Mindful Universe, especially the fact that memories are not stored in the brain. That's one of the most extraordinary kind of lessons of my journey. But it showed me very clearly that memories are stored in an information field that the brain has access to, uh, but they are not physically stored in the brain. And that's something that neurosurgeons had suspected uh, for decades because we've never had a case where a broad swathe of 
of permanent memories were deleted with any operation. But anyway, over the two months of recovery, um, uh, I started to realize, uh, you know, how extraordinary this experience was and then um, dove in full force to investigate that as a scientist with hundreds of other scientists around the world investigating consciousness over the time since my coma. Wow. Let's just take a moment and take a deep breath because that is, you know, you've lived that story and you come so alive when you're telling it. It's, um, you know, it's, it's just truth in, in your, in energy. I mean, it's, it's, but it's also doesn't escape me that like the, the universe almost has a great sense of humor, you know, that you're chosen as this, you know, Harvard trained neurosurgeon who is, you know, so decorated and, and so, um, so experienced. And then you have this experience that just turns your view of the world. I'm sure at that point on its, on its ear. And at the same time, you have the language and the knowledge to bridge that experience between, you know, other, other people who have had NDEs and the world of science. I mean, you are the perfect soul to be doing this work. Well, it's, you know, there are many perfect souls out there reporting these kind of extraordinary spiritual yes. experiences. And, you know, I simply put mine out there with the rest of them as a beautiful kind of collection of human experience. Uh, in fact, the biggest gift to me has been by sharing my experience with the world. There have been thousands of people who have shared their experience back with me. And all it does is completely affirm and, and kind of validate and show the reality of this world. It's been a tremendous gift to me. The reason the scientific community takes my case so seriously is because of all that documented damage uh, to the neocortex. Um, but in terms of the spiritual content, I would say it simply aligns in many ways with so many other experiences. And you really have to kind of open your mind to see this beautiful patchwork quilt of human experience that has a lot of commonality and overlap. That's what the scientific researchers like Dr. Bruce Grayson, who studied these as a skeptical medical scientist for more than 45 years, that's what they end up determining. Studying tens of thousands of these kind of reports, you start to see these commonalities that suggest a very real realm. Uh, these are not hallucinations. They are not... Uh, um, confabulations or dreams. They're much more real than that. That's one of the problems. People often default to the assumption that an NDE must be kind of murky and dreamy. Well, no, this existence is murky and dreamy uh, compared to that. That is sharp, clear, detailed, absolutely packed with meaning. And uh, it's why these things change people's lives forever. You don't have that from a psychotic break or a hallucination or a dream, but you certainly have it from these kind of extraordinary experiences. Yes. And, you know, I've had, I've had mystical experience, not an NDE, but some real similarities to how you're describing it. And I find it interesting that you talk about how you're still unpacking it because my experience is that it's almost like a download. Like you, you continue to get information. It's almost like my brain doesn't have the capacity to receive it all at one time. So this idea of 14 years later that you're still unpacking this, this experience in this realm of it that is just so far above even information wise, you know, what the brain can handle, that it's, that's always been my sense that it filters in over 
weeks and months. And I don't know if you had that experience. Absolutely. And uh, in fact, you know, at the beginning, I was my own worst, most skeptical critic because mm-hmm. as I told my older son, who was majoring in neuroscience at the time, and he had been at my bedside when I was in deep coma. But when he came home uh, from school soon after I got out of the hospital, I gave him a big hug and he said it was like there was a light shining within me, like I was more present than I'd ever been before. And um, I told him it was way too real to be real. Of course, I had already been trying to explain it to my doctors. You know, they couldn't understand how I was even coming back to this world. I mean, the very fact that I was leaving the hospital and not going to a nursing home was a shock to many of my physicians uh, just because of the severity of my illness. Um, And yet uh, the whole process of kind of unpacking it and unraveling it uh, has been an extraordinary gift. I meditate an hour to a day. I do that a lot to get back in touch with my NDE, not just to recover memories, but to uh, develop relationships and have an ongoing uh, 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 set of experiences with the guides and that uh, incredibly uh, healing force of love, that God force that I encountered. And that's something I, I like to get back to every day. So I use it uh, you know, for, for my own purposes, for uh, prayer for others, for healing this world of uh, prayer for conflict zones and uh, you know, for all the kind of suffering that people have in this world. And I am uh, very busy in my prayer space and meditation space uh, trying to uh, uh, really amplify that message and help people around this world. And uh, for those who need a tool to meditate, I can certainly recommend Sacred Acoustics. If you go to sacredacoustics.com, you can learn a lot more. It turns out that our third book, Living in a Mindful Universe, it was co-written with my life partner, Karen Newell. Um, We address meditation and going within consciousness a lot in that book. And this form of differential frequency brainwave entrainment, from my perspective as a neuroscientist, is a very powerful way uh, to kind of interrupt the normal cycle of kind of mind and brain function and allow us to traverse that veil and get much more in touch with that primordial mind uh, that I think is the source of all conscious awareness. I love that. I'm going to check that out. I found my way after my experiences to um, crystal bowls. Sound is very important and a really, I think, a really important tool um, for everyone to get out of their own way. You know? Absolutely. Well, it turns out in a lot of, if you listen to conch shells blown in shamanic ceremonies, uh, crystal bowls, as you mentioned, gongs, uh, a lot of these natural um, producers of sound uh, naturally produce binaural beats, a, a slight difference in frequency coming from different parts of the instrument or instruments uh, that leads to this uh, interesting effect in the lower brainstem. It's using a circuit that most other sound doesn't utilize at all. Most of the sounds that might engender a transcendental state of conscious awareness, like a chant or anthem or hymn, are processed in the acoustic cortex of the temporal lobes in circuits that have really evolved uh, mainly in the last uh, one to three or four million years. Very different from the circuit we're talking about with sacred acoustics. That circuit's in the lower brainstem and evolved more than 300 million years ago before uh, mammals even walked the earth. So that's one of the reasons that I think uh, kind of modulating that circuit at a very primitive brainstem level can have such a profound effect on engendering of you know conscious experience like enhanced remote viewing or out-of-body experiences 
or helping people return to a near-death experience. Karen and I have taken our work, workshops to uh, major groups of near-death experiencers uh, in an effort to help them uh, get back into their experience, and also used it uh, for people who've never had an NDE to kind of help them using the Grayson scale, or the NDE scale, as Bruce Grayson calls it, uh, which is a 16-point scale uh, to assess NDEs. Well, you can also use that to assess meditative efforts to generate NDEs, and that's exactly what we do in a lot of our workshops. Turns out Sacred Acoustics has been very supported for working against anxiety in a peer-reviewed pilot study published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases by Dr. Anna Yusim, Y-U-S-I-M, in February of 2020. And that case report is available to everyone, but it shows a 26% reduction uh, in anxiety symptoms over two weeks in her patient population versus only a 7% reduction in those who received conventional talk therapy. So mm -hmm. Sacred Acoustics has a real track record. Uh, we're setting up some other studies to try and show its utility at the end of life setting, you know, terminal care, uh, anxiety, depression, all these different ways that uh, connecting with your higher soul can in fact lead to tremendous healing. That's really fascinating. And one, one other thing I notice is for me and anyone I've talked to that has had an awakening or an NDE, you come back changed. You know, you can't, it's, I, I think that idea that, you know, your experience where you were is almost more real than here, but there's also this recognition that there's part of you that's still there. And right. so it, it, it engenders um, a sense of responsibility is too heavy of a word, but just this awareness that our actions, our thoughts, um, our prayers matter here greatly. Absolutely. That is a crucial point. I'll also point out that the materialist science, conventional materialism that I was pursuing, you know, in the decade or two before my coma, uh, which is the version you get from the New York Times and Scientific American and all that materialism, um, at, at its fullest form will, will scoff at you if you claim to have any free will. Uh, and that's because that... Uh, conventional materialist science claims that neurons are basically like billiard tables and billiard balls are like the ions and that they follow Newtonian deterministic uh, uh, reactions dictated by the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. So where would you inject free will? There's no place to do it until you realize the primacy of consciousness. And that, I think, is where our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, argues very strongly for uh, what's known as objective idealism. That is that in this universe, there's kind of a top-down causal principle that comes from the mental layer of the universe. It's not about the physical. If you try and close it all up within the physical universe, uh, as some quantum physicists try and do, you then have to postulate infinite parallel universes unfolding at every junction point of a sentient being's observation. You know, the many worlds interpretation of Hugh Everett from 1957. And yet I would say that uh, many who study quantum physics and neuroscience in the current era are realizing that we don't seem to live in that world of infinite parallel universes. And to accommodate this uh, sense that we live in one universe, the easiest way to do it is to realize that the mental layer uh, dictates everything that happens. And you can call that human free will. Uh, of course, we uh, do not consider that we normally can violate the the, the laws of physics, for example, 
Uh, and yet there are cases in history where thousands of people would witness the same thing. For example, Joseph of Copertino was a, a monk who used to be able to get into these trans states and he would float around. He was investigated by the Catholic Church, you know, and tens of thousands of witnesses corroborated these stories of uh, Joseph uh, levitating. And he was not really conscious of doing it. He would be in a deep meditative trance state, but he would levitate and violate, you know, our, our notion of gravity. Uh, so we really come to realize at a deep level that it's all really about perception. Uh, and this is something John Wheeler pointed out. He was head of physics at Princeton University in the uh, mid-20th century. He came up with what he called the participatory anthropic principle, which was a very powerful statement about the role of mind in influencing emerging reality. And I would say that especially in the current era, uh, these discussions have gotten to a point where objective idealism is very well supported as one of the best metaphysical models for reality. And we therefore look at the brain more as a filter of consciousness, but not its producer. And that uh, there is a fundamental uh, primordial mind that we are all part of. And that's what we return to in these extraordinary spiritual experiences like an NDE. But we can also glimpse into that territory through dreams, through psychedelic drugs, uh, through meditation, and, and I would highly recommend meditation over psychedelic drugs. I think the psychedelic drugs create a huge splash. They make it very difficult to discern information. Uh, and from my point of view, and as evidenced by our workshops that Karen and I have done around the world, I think you can make more progress in this, this kind of spiritual enlightenment and understanding uh, through meditation. Uh, yeah. And that's where a powerful tool like sacred acoustics can be so handy. Well, and in my experience too with meditation, and you mentioned it too, you're building, you're building a, a road, a pathway to that place that you can you that you know whether it's a neural pathway or a learned way of being that you can find your own way back there, and that they're like breadcrumbs that that is really important that we practice that you know on a on a quiet Tuesday so that when we really might need it when we're in times of crisis or suffering we can find our way back. Well, absolutely. And I realized, you know, in the year and two after my coma, I read more than 150 books on consciousness, brain, mind, physics, every bit of it, trying to come to a deeper understanding. Uh, and I realized that if I really wanted to get it, I had to explore my own consciousness. And when you realize that your consciousness can contain the entire universe throughout uh, all of eternity and infinity, uh, obviously, there's a lot of room there to work with the universe at large. Uh, and so going inside the mental realm is a, an incredibly fruitful place to explore. And that's where uh, through sacred acoustics, through uh, differential frequency brainwave entrainment, uh, deep meditation, uh, centering prayer, all of it comes together for me. Uh, but I've, I've made tremendous progress in my own kind of understanding and sense of where this is going. And I would say the scientific world is also making tremendous uh, progress as we go in, in, in this particular decade. Uh, I know that uh, uh, when we were in Belgium in 2018 for a meeting, one of the neuroscientists there pointed out that the book Proof of Heaven marked an inflection point in 2012 and that the annual rate of scientific papers on near-death experiences quadrupled since that book came out compared to the annual rate for 32 years before Proof of Heaven came out. 
I don't know if proof of heaven was causal in that tremendous uptick of scientific papers on NDEs, or if it was simply a very good fortune on my behalf to publish that book when the scientific world was just beginning to ramp up. Uh, but the reality is the scientific world is awakening to this. Uh, the days of materialism and, you know, some materialist scientists telling you there is no afterlife, there is no God, these are all just imagined experiences, hallucinations, those days are gone. Because, in fact, uh, if you go to BigelowInstitute.org, you will find 29 essays that were the subject of a competition last year uh, hosted by Robert Bigelow, a Las Vegas uh, aerospace engineer or entrepreneur, uh, and he put up $1.8 million in prize money. And all those essays, to answer the question, what's the best scientific evidence for a continuation of consciousness after permanent bodily death? And that's what those 29 essays answer so beautifully. Any one of them will convince most of us that the afterlife is real. But the entire group, especially all the different ways that they go after the topic, uh, it's irrefutable evidence. The afterlife is absolutely real. And anyone who goes forward saying, no, it's not, these are hallucinations, it's all made up, they're simply professing willful ignorance. And that's it. It's that simple. Go read the essays at BigelowInstitute.org and you will realize a very refreshing and liberating view of, of humanity and of continuity of consciousness is clearly coming into view in the scientific world. Yeah, I mean, I would just say in terms of your publication of that book, I, my understanding after my experiences is that we live in a, in a loving, fundamentally loving substrate, like a loving universe with intelligence. And for me, it's really interesting. I'm an ophthalmologist and my experiences came in the form of light, light as mm -hmm. information for me. And so it, it, in that setting, it seems no surprise that you, that you were given the task of writing this book at a certain moment. And to me, that's, I also, I've studied yoga, I practice yoga. So to me, that was, I see that as you stepping forward on your field of Dharma, like doing what you were called to do. Um, and in the future, it makes me excited to think, you know, we hear a lot about shifting consciousness and in, in, in people who have had near-death experiences or um, meditative awakenings, um, there's a gnosis, there's a knowing there that cannot be taken away. Right. And there's this vision of the future that I would love to see where, you know, people that, that we get past that skepticism that I feel blocks so much of, of, of other people experiencing this because life would look very different if, if even a certain percentage of the population had that knowing, don't you think? Well, I think absolutely. In fact, I often think that uh, what we're really talking about here is uh, more than 5,000 years of human destiny and an absolute essential ingredient to uh, homo sapiens truly becoming wise is that we survive long enough to get through the cusp. Because right now, you know, I can be impressed with all the technological and scientific developments of the 20th century in medicine, communication, uh, uh, transportation, etc. But I also have to admit the ugly underbelly of modern science and technology, our addiction to fossil fuels, global warming, uh, economic polarization, corporate greed, um, just uh, the list goes on and on, warfare, violence uh, in our society, etc. These are all 
uh, manifestations of the false sense of separation that comes out of materialist thinking. A new quantum-informed vision of consciousness and reality is one that makes us much more responsible for our choices, that we're all in this together, we're here to help each other, uh, and that to continue to make choices out of greed that poison and intoxicate this planet and lead towards extinction of millions of species, you know, that's just an abominable thought, and yet that is what the status quo is going to get us. So this awakening that we are talking about, this sense of deep responsibility for all the choices we make, both individually and societally as cultures uh, living on this planet and having a stewardship of this planet as our main charge, all of that comes to the fore. And we realize that uh, this kind of awakening uh, that we're discussing in this uh, podcast is, uh, is a matter of survival. And, uh, you know, it would be... a uh, horrible tragedy for us to continue with our greed and uh, uh, with these addictions to fossil fuels, global warming out of control, uh, that if, if you really must demand a selfish, egotistical reason to do otherwise, just uh, remember that in those Bigelow papers, you'll find plenty of evidence for reincarnation. University of Virginia Division of Perceptual Studies, uvadops.org has more than 2,500 cases of past life memories in children studied over the last six decades. 1,700 of them have been solved. That is, they've found the actual person that that child is remembering being uh, in the historical record. So, in other words, some aspect of me today will be alive, you know, a century from now to uh, live through whatever uh, environment we have for our world if we ignore global warming or if we take care of it. So if you need a selfish reason, just look at that reincarnation data and realize we need to take responsibility for this planet and we need to start uh, doing the right things and not continue to burn biomass and fossil fuels and uh, drive our, ourselves and millions of other species extinct. So I think the point you're making is that this, in many ways, is an important and crucial challenge for the very real existence of humanity uh, to continue and thrive. Absolutely. And I just wonder if, you know, somewhat we've, you, you shared your story so beautifully and it was so, I mean, I it was a felt sense of, of love. And then we dove into the science, but just coming back out of that a little bit to someone who um, is really interested, who may have lost someone they love, who may be facing down a terminal diagnosis. Um, can you maybe just talk a little bit about life lessons, like how you live your life differently in the after than the before and how, and so to offer sort of breadcrumbs for people, you know, I, you have this gnosis and so do I, that, that the afterlife or the beyond us is love. And so there's not a lot of fear, but many people have that existential dread or the, the loss of a loved one. Um, and so how do you live your life day to day in a way that um, reminds you of that place and, and helps you know that you're living here in, in sort of right relationship? I'd say my life changed 180 degrees. I mean, when you subscribe to uh, materialist thought, you know, and think the physical is all that exists and things like thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, emotions have no basis in reality, uh, that's a very bleak and paltry fiction. 
uh, to be living. And so to flip that whole thing and come back realizing that, uh, you know, we are all eternal spiritual beings with a very sacred nature. We are indeed one with that divine force, that infinitely loving God force. But of course, the ego can be very toxic. So it's uh, in many ways, uh, I treat that ego very gently, put it into time out. But I realize I'm much more than that. And I've come to prove that to myself time and again through daily meditation, an hour to a day using sacred acoustics, as I said, uh, and using that for kind of self uh, awareness, self uh, kind of determining the kind of nature of the universe, because each and every one of us really has the mind of the entire universe at our disposal. It's one universal consciousness. Uh, and when you realize that it's all about love and kindness, compassion, uh, these are very reassuring and comforting notions that uh, can really help us in our dealings with other people. And the first and foremost, I realize that much of the tragedy in our world today is because we don't love ourselves enough. Forget loving our neighbor or loving our enemy. Uh, loving ourselves as the divine and sacred beings that we are. And that's something that can be recovered through meditation. Uh, a deep sense of connection with the universe, a sense that there are spiritual guides that are available to help us. Uh, and then also coming to see uh, just how damaging that little ego mind is, the voice in our heads. Um, you know, so many people identify with that running stream of thoughts in the head. But I love how Michael Singer in his book, The Untethered Soul, calls that running stream of thoughts the uh, annoying roommate. Mm -hmm. And that says a lot right there. And uh, that's where meditation and centering prayer can be so powerful because I can spend a lot of time going deep within this kind of one mind, traversing the, the veiling function of the brain and connect with others in a way that can be very helpful. Uh, it helps me. It helps them. It's all about that love. It's all about the highest and best outcome. I came to realize uh, that some who I might have before my coma seen as my nemesis or my enemy in many ways were my near and dear soul mates. So pray for your enemy because they are trying to work with you towards learning and teaching of some very deep and challenging lessons. Uh, I love that old saying from Confucius. If you Paraphrasing, if you see something uh, objectionable in someone else, look inside yourself. And in many ways, that's kind of the deep rule of, of understanding of this sharing of the one mind and how we're all sharing that dream of the one mind in this process of growth. Uh, learning more about ourselves, about the universe, about our meaning and purpose here. Uh, and in, from my point of view, you can gain a very rich kind of spiritual essence uh, and there I would define spiritual as just being two ingredients. One is uh, this acknowledgement of the oneness of mind that we're all in this together. And that is coming out crystal clear in the world of consciousness studies from a scientific perspective. And also the sense of a shared meaning and purpose uh, that we're here to grow together and learn together. And, and that's where I think, as I mentioned, this 5,000 year challenge to humanity, uh, the cul-de-sac that we're in right now is a very dangerous one. And we really need to start making much more responsible choices. And that's why this awakening is happening now, is to help all of us get on board with that much richer sense of purpose and of taking care of each other and not taking advantage of each other, which is the corporate greed and kind of the general uh, kind of notion of materialist separation uh, and that we're just in competition with each other. And that's just false. 
Uh, there's much more of a sense of collaboration and cooperation, uh, whether you're looking at biological systems and evolution or looking at human beings and their societies. So it's really time to grow into this much higher mo mode of a truly wise Homo sapiens. Well, Dr. Evan Alexander, I think we will leave it right there. I'm so grateful for you for taking the time to have this conversation with me. I'm grateful for you coming back from that near-death experience and um, finding a way to bridge and use your, your knowledge base in such an effective way. Um, Thank you. you know, many people are having near-death experiences, but few are able to, um, to be that bridge, which I think is really important. Um, and I wish you many blessings in your future and in, in teaching and sharing this information. I will link your website um, in the show notes and uh, you know, you've, you have four books, you have, do you do live events now for people or do you do trainings? Yes, we, uh, we do um, training sessions. We have a shift network course coming up in the autumn that we're very excited about that we'll have to do with spiritual healing. So we focus on major topics like that and then bring in big groups through the shift network. As an example, uh, Theosophical Society has also sponsored many of our recent kind of events and and webinars. We like to share this uh, as widely as we possibly can, uh, because this, you know, all of these experiences contribute to the awakening of humanity. And in fact, the main reason I wrote Proof of Heaven was to take the lid off, so other people, including the medical profession, nurses, etc., would all be sharing these stories in large measure. Uh, the BigelowInstitute.org work is incredibly important. So far, mainstream media has not really picked up on it, but anyone is free to go for free to read all of those papers at BigelowInstitute.org, and I strongly encourage people to do that and share them widely, because this is what will wake this world up. You cannot go through those papers and come away harboring some simplistic, false, atheistic, materialist belief, because it's a false belief. It has nothing to do with the nature of reality. Uh, and that's where we can grow tremendously through broadening our understanding of who we are. So excited. You've offered us so many um, tools and um, I will link those. I'll go back through and, and anything that you've, you've offered, I'll, I'll categorize that for people. And I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Well, Levine, thanks so much for having me on. It's great talking with you. Thank you. Bye-bye.